What's going on, everyone? We are back. It is the Pitch Count Podcast. We were down and out for a while, weren't we, Chris? Yeah, it seemed like forever. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was. So I'm not going to get into a long story. And let's, let's refresh the folks. My name is Pete Ball. I podcast on the Pitch Count Podcast. I also podcast for Pitcherlist. I'm here with Chris, Chris Wentworth, a longtime fantasy baseball player. Chris, you want to reintroduce yourself to the folks? Yeah, man. Um, my name's Chris. I've been doing fantasy baseball now probably for like, you know, six or seven years. And I just love it. And I feel like I get more and more um, in-depth knowledge of the game of baseball every year that I do it. And it just, you know, as a baseball like hobbyist and enthusiast and fan, it's just it's a great way to get to know the game. So I always recommend it to people that are you know, big baseball fans, but they just, they don't really know the players, um, during that time period or like, you know, they're not like, they haven't, you know, been kind of like active in the baseball world. If they want to get back into it, fantasy is the way to do it. That's right. And and Chris nailed it there because not only are we fantasy players, but we're also baseball fans. So we might sometimes go on tangents about Red Sox and Dodgers players or what have you. That shouldn't be all that much of a surprise to those of you that were listening before, but we are back and, and essentially we were gone because we were having some really we were having some tech issues, particularly with the application that we use to record these, but we think we figured it out. We've squared it up and we are ready to bring the hot takes, the lava right before the season kicks off today. Um, we are focusing really on position battles um, throughout spring trainings and, and not just position battles, but ones that could have some fantasy implications, ones that if you know player X wins this position battle, he is a guy that you want to target in your fantasy drafts. And we're going to hopefully look at at least six of them, but we're, we're ready to keep going as long as we have to, to get through these. Chris, you ready to go? You want to hit us with your first position battle here in spring training? I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to bring, bring the magma, bring the lava, bring the hot takes. I love that. Um, so yeah, uh, my first one is going to be, there's a little bit of a positional battle going on in Philadelphia right now for the center field job. And there's a few people that are, you know, definitely in the mix there. I think that most reports have it that Odubel Herrera, believe it or not, is back from the dead. And um, he might actually be the strongest contender for that center field job right now. He's probably the most MLB experienced out of the group. He's probably the most adjusted to the center field position out of the group. Um, you know, that's that's argu- that's debatable, but, you know, he's definitely had a lot of experience out there. And the other guy, the secondary candidate, is probably going to be Scott Kingery, um, just because he doesn't really look to have a position over there. Um, I think that second base is going to be pretty much dominated by Gene Segura. Shortstop's going to be Gregorius, and then you're going to have Baum at third base with Hosmer at first. So that um, completely eliminates all the infield positions right there. So, so Kingery has had some experience in the outfield. He's kind of like that utility guy that they love, that they're really, really looking forward to being able to play all of these different positions in the in the field. But for right now, I think that outfield is probably where he's had the least experience. Um, he's sort of mixed in all the different infield positions, but outfield is definitely something that's probably going to take the most for him to adjust to out of all of them. So I don't know if they're exactly sold there either, or if he's going to be somebody who just kind of slots into a a different position every single day. He could end up being that guy that they play one day over here, one day over there. They give him a rest day, and then they give their other guys rest days um, and and put him in the starting lineup. So I'm not exactly sold there either. But the dark horse candidate that everybody's talking about this spring is going to be former number one overall pick Mickey Moniak, who for some reason, and I don't exactly know why, people were automatically writing off as a complete dud of a pick before he even 
really made any major league experience. So this is a guy that, you know, Philadelphia saw a really, really quick bat in in the draft. Um, he kind of sprayed line drives all over the place. You know, they loved it. His defense was was solid as well. Flash forward about three years after he's drafted. Um, you know, he's had some struggles in the minors. He doesn't really hit for much power. Um, is he just going to be kind of a glove first overall fielding player? And is, is that really going to end up warranting that former first overall pick um, is a lot of the questions that were on people's minds. And then he has some major league experience last September and he doesn't really, you know, end up um, meeting expectations. He has more strikeouts than hits. Even in his short time, he made a few fielding errors despite having a pretty solid track record as a solid uh, center fielder. Now flash forward even further into this spring where he's swatted a few huge home runs already. And he's really looking like he's that former line drive spray hitter, like hitting different parts of the field. He's got, I think, the highest average out of anybody on that Philadelphia team during spring training. And I think he's tied for the most home runs even. And, you know, going into it, I was like, well, what happened? It looks like it's just a really, really easy mentality switch I've been quoted as to saying that this hitting coach joe dylan philadelphia hitting coach he really really helped him kind of turn it around and got him back to like focused on the things that matter you know he said that he was really really focused on being a 300 hitter hitter instead of maybe now he's thinking i just gotta have a 370 on base percentage which is and then i can i can believe in my bat to do the rest is just as long as i get on base so he's making all these kind of like mental adjustments in his head and he's sort of like working his swing with the hitting coach to make it back to where Philadelphia first saw it as like that, you know, really quick bat speed spray hitter. And he's he's emerging as a really, really good option as either somebody that they can start off immediately this 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 season as their center fielder or maybe a little bit further down the road. The only question I think that's going to come into play is service time, right? And I don't know if that service time last year, September, actually did him a favor or if it's going to work against him where like, I don't know if this year they have to keep him down for a long period or if it's just maybe like a couple of weeks. But I think that all of that's going to be a question just how soon we see him up there. But I don't think it's going to be, a, I don't think whether or not he's going to be up is going to be a question at all. And if he can deliver, then I think he's going to end up starting somewhere in the outfield. He's even been taking reps at left field, I think they said this spring. So I think if he hits and he performs, he's going to he's going to make that team. Yeah, that's those are all awesome points. Uh, I am interested a little bit in Mickey Moniak as a, as a little bit of a sleeper pick there. So for the folks at home, well, what, what should we expect for fantasy? That is kind of the ultimate question. If Moniak is ultimately given this job eventually, and I do think it will start off as Kingery, whether due to service time like Chris brought up or just more likely giving Kingery his dues and his opportunity. And if Kingery is the everyday starting center fielder, I do have a little bit of interest there. I think there's a nice power speed combo, despite the exorbitant strikeouts and the, and the, the pretty poor exit velocity. But nevertheless, he's a guy who's shown in the past. He has some upside. He is a, he is a really fast guy as a point of reference. His sprint speed in 2020 was in the 91st percentile and in 2019, the 93rd. So it is it is genuine. It's just the other tools are yet to show themselves, uh, which is sometimes the case with 26-year-olds. But if we wanted to dive into Moniak, he's, we could look at three pretty decent-sized samples from 17, 18, and 2019 in the minors. Pretty consistent. Each one of these was at least 465 plate appearances, so they're big chunks through 509 plate appearances in 2017, he had five homers and 11 stolen bases, 114 games played, 465 plate appearances in 2018. That was another five homers, but only six stolen bases, and he was caught stealing five times. And then in 2019, 
with 119 games played, 504 plate appearances, 11 homers, and 15 stolen bases. So you can see the improvement eventually when he got to the higher level in AA. And as Chris was talking about, maybe the coaching, some adjustments being made. There's so much pedigree that was originally there as the number one overall pick. He is. He's a really sneaky sleeper that could provide a decent amount of stolen bases and maybe a little bit of power if that's beginning to emerge. It should be noted in those 504 plate appearances, yeah, there were only 11 homers, but there were 28 doubles and 13 triples. So he's he's not completely nothing uh, in the power department. So Chris, if you had to take a guess, who do you think the, the Phillies go with there uh, to start the year at center field? Well, I think that it really comes down to the service clock time, like I had mentioned. Um, I do think that they start off with either Odubel Herrera or Kingery. Um, I, I kind of give the nod to Kingery only because they gave him a big contract, man, and I really don't expect them to not utilize um, his skill set for the money that they're, they're shelling out for him. But the the biggest question, like I said, is going to be service time because if Moniak has got like a Chris Bryant thing where he can be up in two weeks and it not affect his overall service time, they're going to do it, I think. And I don't think that they're going to hesitate about it, especially if he's playing well. Um, they already started the clock last September, so I really don't see what, you know, it, besides an extra year of control, I don't see what's to stop them from bringing him up um, this season. All fair points. All fair points. I, I didn't mention Odubel Herrera. I think he's going to most likely be traded. Obviously, Odubel Herrera did something terrible. He's asking for forgiveness from the team, but I think between the youth they have at center field and really just no need to keep Odubel Herrera around, I think they're going to try to find a trade for him. Don't really expect much from him. The last time we saw him at the major league level, it really wasn't all that impressive. It was for a very brief amount of time before his suspension in 2019, and in 2018, he really wasn't that great. So he, if it's him, if it does end up being Odubel Herrera, I have no interest. If it's Kingery or Moniak in, in deeper leagues, there could certainly be some interest there. I 100% agree with you there. So my for pick for this is between, well, really the Marlins second base situation. Uh, the first candidate is Ison Diaz, who really made a big splash in a grand slam off Jacob deGrom uh, during his first taste in the major leagues. He's a lefty who strikes out way too much, but does have a lot of pop in his bat, which given his position makes him pretty interesting. But the strikeout rate in 2019, when he got his first taste, was 29.4%. And then in last year, 2020, he barely played at all, but he struck out 32% of the time. That was, again, just in 22 at-bats, but it's not like we noticed any improvement in that very tiny stretch. And his opponent for this is someone who also strikes out a lot, and that is Jazz Chisholm. However, I really like Jazz Chisholm, and that's not a hot take. I mean, he's one of the higher prospects around baseball when the Marlins made that baffling trade with the Diamondbacks where they traded away Zach Gallon, who's looking like an ace for Chisholm, he really began to to pop up on the fantasy radar. He got his first taste last year, and it was kind of feast or famine in 56 at-bats. He had two homers, and he stole two bases, which you know was a little promising for a guy getting his first taste. But he did strike out 31% of the time, hard hit percentage down around 30%, and the exit velocity really wasn't that impressive. But he's a very toolsy player. There's a lot of raw talent there, just in terms of his athleticism, his ability to impact the baseball on any given swing. And of course, the number one thing here with him getting second base eligibility or Diaz at second base, that is you know, typically the thinnest position that we're dealing with lately. Um, so I am kind of interested in both as a reference point uh, in 2019 at double A with Chisholm. We're talking about 450 plate appearances and we're, we're talking 21 homers and 16 stolen bases. So between just 450 plate appearances, the 21 homers and 16 stolen bases, you can kind of get an idea of what the upside is here. It's just going to be 
Can he cut down on the strikeouts? Can he make that adjustment? And is he going to get the opportunity to do so? And if he does, I really like Chisholm. I think for Diaz, I Diaz is a little bit different for me because he doesn't really offer that speed opportunity at second base. So at least if I take Chisholm super late as my backup second baseman, there's a lot of potential there, whereas I think the ceiling for Diaz and fantasy is a little bit more limited. So I'd be lying if I told you I was rooting for Diaz in this matchup, but I do think either player could be pretty interesting depending on who wins the spot out of spring training. Diaz is interesting, right? Because like his very first game, he came up and he was, um, he basically like hit a home run off of Jacob deGrom, right? And that's like not something that's very easy to do, obviously. And his dad was there and it was, I remember watching it live and I was just like, wow, that's gotta be just a great first moment for this kid. Like, who is this guy? You do a little deep diving on him. He's had some power in the minors too. And now all of a sudden they make that trade with Arizona, like you said, and they've got Jazz Chisholm, who's like, really much more reputable I think in the prospect world than Diaz but like they're both kind of like the same guy in a weird way like they both have these like kind of raw raw tools so I'm very curious to see like what they do maybe if they start with Diaz kind of like up and playing every day and he swats a few massive homers against like the Grom or somebody else like that and they find some trade value for him and then bring Chisholm up after they've retained another year of control with him kind of like their star prospect that they've obviously invested a lot into like you said gallons just looking more and more like an ace every day so like clearly the investment in chisholm i think they're weighing a lot heavier than the investment in diaz so i don't know what that means in terms of like how that's going to translate to the 2021 season but um if i had to guess they're both going to get some opportunity and the mar the mariner marlins sorry the marlins are going to try to see where they can get value out of either of them either on field or in a trade. Yeah, that's that's a fair way to look at it. I, you know, Chisholm could certainly move over to shortstop. So who knows how they're going to shake out this infield. Lewin Diaz is looming as well. I will say that neither guy is really all that impressive at the moment in spring training. Diaz is two for 15. He has struck out five times. He's stolen no bases and he has not hit any homers. On the flip side, Jazz Chisholm is two for 18. He has hit a homer. He's also struck out seven times, and he has not stolen a base, but he has been caught stealing. So neither guy is really jumping off the page, uh, which could certainly make things interesting if there's a looming third candidate. I don't really know who that would be at this point. You know, they're, they're a team who's had a lot of turnover recently. They've got this odd situation where the majority of their team is actually old well the majority of their offense is actually old I mean there's only really one guy on their roster who's under 27 years old who's slated to be starting on roster resource and they do give that nod to Ice and Diaz and they say he's going to be in a platoon with John Birdie so I guess John Birdie would be that guy to swoop in and potentially get everyday at bats and to me that makes this battle even more interesting because if you're telling me that John Birdie's getting everyday at bats because Diaz and Chisholm are not ready they're striking out too much and John Birdie's a guy who could steal 40 bags this year if, if he were to get you know 550 plate appearances or whatever so it, it's a really interesting situation the second base Marlins situation yeah I completely agree I think that the Marlins in general is kind of an interesting situation going into this year there's a lot of um toolsy players like you've mentioned kind of like some some weird talent here and there mixed in i mean obviously we're all, we're all kind of expecting huge things from Sixto sanchez after we saw his brief outing last year um and they've got you know like you said blade is another one who's really starting to impress early on and he was one of those guys that I remember reading the report on him and most of the scouts kind of like all agreed like this guy's going to be ready 
quicker than you think. Like he's going to be ready to play at the MLB level. He's just he's going to be ready like very, very soon. It's almost like a similar situation to Riley Green over in Detroit. Those are two guys that I really have my eye on, especially in Dynasty Leagues, because I think that they're both just a hop, skip and a jump away from getting on their teams and, and playing every day. But yeah, not to detract from the second base situation, um, but Chisholm is definitely who I'm more excited about. But hey, I would not be surprised if you, you know, waiver add Isan Diaz and he ends up hitting like 20 home runs this season. Which could be so, so valuable at that position. But anyway, Chris, what were you thinking for your second spring training battle? Who are you looking at? I actually also have a second baseman, um, a second base situation over in Chicago with the Cubs. There's sort of a three-headed monster And when I say monster, I really don't mean monster. It's kind of like a three-headed kitten going on between Nico Herner, David Boat, or Bodie. I don't know how you say it. And then Bodie, David (laughs) Bodie. (laughs) I found you, Miss New Bodie. Also back from the dead, Jason Kipnis. Um, A lot of guys back from the dead. Pretty pretty interesting. But um, so yeah, I'm kind of rooting for them to go with Nico Herner because they don't really have too much excitement going on over there in Chicago. And um, I don't really get excited when I hear the names David Bodie or Jason Kipnis anymore. Anyways, at least Kipnis at one point was exciting, but I don't really think um, anymore unless you're just looking for like a one day ad and just pray that he hits a homer. I think Kipnis is actually a brave now. Oh, is he really? All right. Well, then never mind. He is so gone. Yeah. All right. Well, then that just clears it up even further for Nico Herner, who has never really had any reputation in the past of hitting for power. And so, you know, that's kind of going to limit his fantasy upside for sure. But he does have some steals in his in his wheelhouse. And he also just does not strike out, you know, looking at his track record in the minor, he never had a season where he struck out more than 10% and that's just crazy. And even, you know, it's translated into his MLB appearance in his MLB experience. Um, not that he's not that he's done very well with what he's, what he's given out so far, but it, at least in terms of the strikeouts, he, you know, 13.4% when he was a rookie in 2019 and then uh, less than 20%, 19% last year in more playtime. So, you know, he's somebody who can definitely make contact with the ball. And if that power even starts to blossom just a little bit, I think that it's no question that they'll stick him in as that everyday second baseman. And if he can, you know, hit for average and he can steal a few bags and he's going to get on base a lot in front of presumably Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant, if he does end up uh, becoming the starter and hits the top of the lineup. Um, also Wilson Contreras, you know, until maybe they get traded, but still. So those are really, really good hitters behind him. And I think that those counting stats are going to be pretty high, at least the runs anyways. And if he steals a few bags and, you know, he hits a few homers, then, you know, I don't, I don't really see why I shouldn't lock him in as a backup kind of option at second base. I would consider taking Nico Horner as my starting second baseman, to be honest with you, because of the premium on steals. I think Horner is going to be a strong source of stolen bases. I'm not worried about David Bodie. I think, I think Bodie's more likely to spell like Hayward um, or or Jock Peterson every now and then. Pair of lefties, especially when they when they face a, a lefty, they might want to get Bodie in there as the righty. I know Mariznick is there as well to spell the outfielders, but you know I know the Cubs really like Bodie, and I think they want to give Horner his chance. He's a really good fielder too, and that rotation is a real pitch to contact rotation, so they're going to want Horner in the field. I mean, up the middle to have Horner and Baez, it's tough to get better than that if you're a ground ball pitcher. So uh, it also interests me now that he's in the lineup 
some of those those Cubs pitch to contact pitchers. But anyway, um, I like that. I think I think actually it's it's pretty safe that he's going to be the second baseman. I know they haven't announced it because if they want to pitch it, certainly as a bat, I'll make him earn his spot. But I'm with you. I think it's going to be Horner, and I would really like him as my as I shouldn't say really like him as my starting second baseman, especially if we're talking like a 12 team league. But if it's late in the draft and I I've got to take somebody from my middle infield spot because maybe I went pitching heavy and there's a couple openings in my offense, especially if I need stolen bases, I am in on Nico Horner. Yeah, me too. Like I said you know if we're talking 10 team 12 team i'm definitely more into him as my backup second baseman but you know you and i our main league is a 16 team league I can easily see a situation where I just kind of forget about second base and I sleep on it for a while. And then I find myself in a situation like, oh, geez, who am I going to take? And then I've got kind of like the lower tier second baseman. And, I'm, and I can see myself taking a shot on Herner and, and just, you know, hoping that he provides some solid stolen base help to an already kind of like depleted category. So, yeah, it's a good call. That's a good call. Of all the names I think we've thrown out there so far, be it Moniac, Diaz, Chisholm, Odubel Herrera, Scott Kingery. I like Nico Horner the most out of that group. And I think I would take him first. So again, we're, we're, we're talking deep leagues, but Nico Horner, I think could, by the end of the year, be pretty valuable in, in a variety of different formats. So g- good call. I'm going to dive into my second, Chris. This one's important to me. We're talking Red Sox in their first base situation, which I think to a lot of people, they might say, wait a second, what do you mean that's a battle at first base? It seems like Chavis is going to the minor leagues and Bobby Dahlbeck, who had eight home runs in like, I don't know, 81 at bats or something like that. He's going to be the first baseman. I am not sold on Bobby Dahlbeck. And if the Red Sox were, then I think we'd be hearing how Tristan Cassis is expendable. I don't think they would have gone out and signed Marwin Gonzalez. I don't think they would have gone out and signed Danny Santana. I don't think they're sold on Bobby Dahlbeck because he strikes out like 40% of the time at the major leagues. I know the number wasn't that high in the minor. I want to say it was like 25%, which is much more survivable, but he's been exposed against major league pitching even in spring training where his strikeout rate has not gone down. He's been feast or famine. He's been a three true outcomes player, home run, walk, or strike. So my gut tells me it's going to be Dahlbeck. However, Marwin Gonzalez has looked pretty good. He's back with Alex Cora. They have a close relationship. I think the only thing that'll save Dahlbeck from Marwin Gonzalez is the fact that the outfield for the Red Sox is, is kind of shaky. I mean, both corner outfield spots are right now supposed to be Franchi Cordero um, and Hunter Renfro. I don't feel comfortable really with either. I'm kind of interested to see what Cordero could do. I think the Renfro signing was a mistake. I think they they jumped the market. And even if he ends up being pretty solid, it's 30 homers with a 220 average, which is probably his likely outcome, that they could have probably gotten something better a little bit later had they waited. Nevertheless, that might put Marwin in the outfield. Shavis has been very unimpressive. He he made a big splash when he originally got called up, but he has a lot to work on. He does not impact the ball very hard. He doesn't really have a set position. Um, he strikes out way too much. Shavis is a work in progress. I'm not out on him. He was a former first round pick and he did show some potential when first called up, but he, he needs to go down to the minors and figure things out. And that leaves us with Chris Danny Santana, who I feel like the world has forgotten about, and maybe rightfully so. Uh, his his you know 2019 quote unquote breakout definitely had some concerning outliers. Uh, the two that stick out the most, his 3.53 BABIP was way above his career average. Now with his sprint speed and how hard he was hitting the ball, I think for that season it was genuine. But then you have to ask yourself: Can he maintain that sprint speed as he gets older? Can can he continue to impact the ball so hard? Maybe he. Can. So the Babbitt will stick, but that still came with a 30% strikeout 
strikeout rate. So for the folks that don't remember, Danny Santana had 28 homers, 21 stolen bases, and an 857 OPS in just 130 games. Pace that out for 162. We're talking about a 30, 25, 280 player who is ADP. Honestly, I had to keep scrolling. I couldn't find him. He's going after like Darwinson Hernandez, a, a legend of the Pitch Count podcast, and he's going to be back in a month. He he tore his UCL and he had some like some weird surgery where it wasn't Tommy John. It was some other thing that like position players can do for a quicker recovery. Um, so he's and, and we know Tommy John is not a big deal for batters. We've seen Glaber go through it. Didi go through it. It's it's not a big deal. It just knocks you out for a little bit of time. Reese Hoskins, I think, is kind of dealing with it now. I don't know if he had Tommy John or not. I think he did. Um, but whatever the case, I, I don't think it's going to be an injury that holds him back. So if what we saw in 2019 is legit, he's better than Bobby Dahlback. And I think he could take that job. And that's something I want to monitor, particularly a first baseman who could steal bases. I kind of... I'm just laughing at myself that um, he's behind the pitch count darling, which is um, <laughs> Darwinson. But no, I mean, I mean, he might rightfully be there, like you said. You know what I mean? Like that that season just looks like it was the most clear example of an outlier that you could possibly like cite in basically like if you were to do a fantasy baseball class, um, you would go, all right, this, so this is like what an outlier looks like. But, you know, if he can just if he can still slap the ball pretty hard and he can still sprint to first base pretty hard, he's going to be a candidate for that job, um, especially during the moments in which Dalbeck goes like, uh, you know, an entire month of like two homers and just like endless strikeouts. Um, they're going to be looking to the bench being like, should we, should we pull the, pull the trigger there? And um, I think at a certain point they're going to, because it's just going to be too much. And maybe Dalbeck, you know, regains his, his status later on or something like that. But it's definitely a situation to monitor, like you say. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And you know, you you pointed out the <laughs> the legend Darwin Her- Darwin's and Hernandez. So I was able to find Santana. I, I was originally looking at my phone, so I was able to use Control F and find him on NFBC ADP. And I filtered it to NFBC 50s leagues, where your bench is 27 spots, and that's really the only spot where at this point you could reasonably draft Danny Santana. And nevertheless, he is going 587, which is seven spots behind Darwin's and Hernandez. Anyway, I can stop talking about Darwin's and now. But if you're in a, a draft and hold, if you're in a super deep league, I especially if you could stash him on the IL, I think Santana could be a pretty nice pick. And I think the Red Sox, they're trying to win this year. They're, they're getting Chris Sale back this year. J.D. Martinez is not young. Bogarts is in his prime. This isn't, this isn't a year where they're just like, yeah, this is a write-off season. No, look at who they signed. They signed veterans, Richards. They brought Perez back. They brought in Ottavino. This is not a rebuilding team. So if Danny Santana is the right man for the job, he's going to get it. He's a guy who can swipe bags, hit for power. I'm kind of interested there in very deep leagues. Um, I'm 100% with you, and I'll, I'll definitely be keeping in mind in um, any NFBC leagues that I participate in this year. Yeah, I wasn't able to get him in, in any of my 50s um, by, by saying I wasn't able to get him. I just chose not to take him in a few of them. But the more I look into him, the more I remember about that 2019, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to really consider him. If I do another NFBC 50s, again, that's a draft and hold of There's no trades. There's no acquisitions. That's just your team for the year. I consider him. I really would. If I felt if I felt good about the rest of my bench, I would I would grab. Yeah, and like you said, it's 27 bench spots. So even if you don't feel that great, just taking a kind of flyer on him's not going to kill you. So Chris, come at us with your third position battle. All right, with my final position battle, I decided to go with a rotation battle, which is going to be Atlanta's fifth starting spot, which does appear to be like kind of dwindling in competition as the days go on. In my opinion, it looks more and more like it's going to be Kyle Wright. Mm-hmm. He's throwing in enough uh bids 
that are, you know, solid enough outings to, to definitely thrust himself into it. But I don't know if it's a surefire lock. And I'll tell you why, because there's a few different options that they have um, over there in Atlanta. They have um, Kyle Wright for sure, but then I don't think that he's a complete lock because of two other guys, Bryce Wilson, who, they, who they've also given a fair enough amount of chance to maybe, you know, just throw him out there again. But then the kind of dark horse or little gem that sparkled is this um, Huascar Inoa um, that just kind of came out of nowhere and struck out four Minnesota twins, including Nelson Cruz, made him look stupid, as a matter of fact, on um, a, either like a really, really kind of like small but effective curveball or maybe it was this really really wild breaking change up that he throws I don't even know I don't know too much about him because he came out of nowhere but he definitely had a strong outing and I don't see why the Braves wouldn't necessarily even when Mike Soroka comes back go with a six-man rotation you know Soroka's been out for a while um, they also have Drew Smiley, who's, you know, like we've talked about before, he's he's younger than you think, but um, he's not somebody who's necessarily known for going seven to eight innings and is like a workhorse innings eater kind of guy. So, you know, they're going to need innings to be pitched by other people at certain points in this season, I think, even when they're at full strength. And I don't see why they don't give this guy a chance if he's if he's going to, you know, at least show some capability there. He's he's doing the exact same thing, in my opinion, as Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson right now. They're all showing reasons why they should be considered. So it's like, you know, I don't necessarily see why they they would just throw him out in favor of Kyle Wright or Bryce Wilson um, at this point yet in the in the spring training. I think that they all have still a fair chance, even though it's starting to lean a little bit towards the guys that they've given opportunities to um, so far. I like the, the six starter approach for this team, particularly when you look at like Charlie Morton, for example, a guy who as the year progresses might begin to feel the wear and tear at 37 years old. You know, he's he's talked about retirement in the past, so I think spacing him out every six days might be the right move. Ian Anderson doesn't have a, a huge inning total, especially after last year. Smiley was a guy who, for a little bit, was coming out of the bullpen. Of course, is going to come back from the injury, so it makes sense them to go with a, a six-man rotation. It just comes down to, can they find two guys after Freed, Morton, Anderson, and Smiley while they wait for Soroka to get back, or even one guy once Soroka gets back to take that and run with it with Kyle Wright. I, I used to love him and you hear about the stuff all the time, but the, the walks aren't good enough. He either needs to cut down the walks or increase the strikeouts. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot of interest there. But even after Wright, you know, you talked about you know and and I, I don't know a whole lot there. Bryce Wilson had that great start in the playoffs last year. I think Tuki Tucson is kind of kind of proven unfortunately he's got to be in the bullpen but there's still Sean Newcomb and there's still Josh Tomlin as well who could potentially make spot starts um so in in a situation where maybe they don't commit to a six-man rotation but on occasion to give some extra rest they throw Tomlin out there they throw Newcomb out there for about four innings especially Newcomb being a lefty that bullpen's loaded with lefties between Will Smith AJ Minter and Tyler Matzik that I think he could certainly see some exposure in the rotation again. So, I mean, to your point, who knows what's going to go on here? It's a clear battle. I I would prefer to see Wright or Bryce Wilson emerge because of the upside that those guys, I want to say, still have. But the clock is ticking uh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's like how long of a leash do you actually give these guys versus um, how long does it take for you to start seeking elsewhere um not necessarily to commit elsewhere but like you know they they probably saw this guy in you who he was first i think with minnesota funny enough 
Um, but then, you know, then he got, I think, dealt over to or either let go and then moved over to Atlanta. And I'm looking at his fan graphs. And the first thing that kind of jumped out at you is like how many um, like how many like little bars they have for how many seasons he's been there. But it's not how many seasons. It's how many trips he's made in the minors. He started off in 2015 with Minnesota and he bound or he stayed there at one level at the rookie level. Then 2016 stayed in another rookie level. Then in 2017, he hops over from Minnesota to Atlanta. And then in 2018, he basically touches almost every single or he touches A and A plus, then 2019 A plus, double A and triple A. And then last year he made an appearance in the majors that I don't even remember. He apparently like got blown up in two sort of relief appearances, uh, relief appearances in the 2019. And then in 2020, I didn't even realize that he was also up in the, in the majors. Maybe he was a relief pitcher there, but yeah, I don't, I don't really remember too much of this guy. And it seems like he's just kind of like a weird guy who's bounced around many different levels in many different spot positions and you know maybe he's picked up some things who knows just something to keep an eye on why not sure yeah i i don't think anything is set in stone in that uh bullpen for sure so chris moving on into my final one i wanted to look at the padres closer situation i think there's a obviously out of the out of the three that i've given here the marlins the red sox and now the padres closer situation first base for the red sox second base of the marlins i think this one has the, the most fantasy implications for the padres what i want to see them do is just completely commit to drew pomeranz as the closer uh I, he's really found his niche he's able to kick up the velocity in a in a one inning role he was absolutely phenomenal last year. I mean, a 1.02 whip. He had 29 strikeouts in just 18 and two-thirds innings, which, like, sure, small sample, but he's proven the last two years he's a very good reliever. The 1.45 ERA is backed up by a 1.85 expected ERA. The strikeout percentage was the best of his career um, following a 2019 season where he had already set the best K record or K um, rate of his career, I should say. He's been fantastic and i if i was the padres i would not mess around with this i would commit to pomeranz there and it's nice that you brought in mark melanson who had a 3.72 fip last year and it's great that you still have emilio pagan who i think is fourth on, in this order and has had some struggles and i actually really like yoni Kila. i was hoping the red sox would go out and get him for their own bullpen but i think the talent difference between these three four players is so great when you consider who's at the top in Pomeranz that I would like to see them commit to him as the closer. And that's me speaking as a fantasy owner, because as a baseball fan, the right move for Drew Pomeranz is to use him whenever you need him. You know, in the seventh inning, when you've got to pull your starter finally, because he gave you a great outing, but he walked the first guy he saw, that guy stole second. Now the tying runs at second base, you need to bring in a reliever. That should be Drew Pomeranz. He's the best arm in there. But as a fantasy player, Drew Pomeranz as the Padres closer, that just reeks of top five closer, and he's not being drafted as such because they have not committed to him. So I would love to see him emerge as the Padres closer heading into 2021. Yeah, I think I agree with you just in basic principle and like like thinking of the other options that are there. But I think the biggest thing for me is that the Padres just name a closer in general. Um, I think that because their offense is so stacked and because their starting pitching is so good now, um, they're, you know, somebody who's, they're a team that's going to have probably a ton of save opportunities, but maybe not, maybe just because they're winning too many games at like a ridiculous rate. Um, But like, I would assume that they're going to have a ton of save opportunities. And if, 
if there is a ton of save opportunities, you really want it to go to one guy rather than get mixed in between like three, three dudes, because then that's like three dudes on maybe like three different teams or, you know, God forbid you end up having them all on your team. You have to use all of your relief pitcher spots on them and just kind of like hope collectively that they get all of the saves in the world so that you stack up against other um, teams in your league. But yeah, I think that for me, the biggest thing is that they just name one in general because it's, it's a gold mine of opportunity right now. Yeah. If, if they did, and I don't expect them to, because it's, it's kind of the nature of the position these days. But if the Padres were to name a closer, no matter which of those four guys it is, even Emilio Pagan after the, the poor 2020 that he had, I would be all in on that player. He would be on a lot of my teams because I do expect the Padres to be in the, towards the top of the league, top five in save opportunities. And if it's Pomeranz with that strikeout potential and, and just the dominance that he's shown the last two seasons, again, that's a, that's a top five closer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at, at what Drew Pomeranz's ADP right now is because he is not being drafted nearly as high as he obviously would be were he named the closer i think all right so pomerantz is going 232 right now which means in front of him will smith which is weird to me because i although i think he's going to be the closer in atlanta he hasn't been named the closer either and i would just rather have pomerantz same thing with matt barnes i mean the red sox are very much leaning matt barnes i think it's it's obvious at this point but he he doesn't have a firm grip on that with with adam Ottavino lurking and so those two are going ahead of pomerantz and that is surprising to me because all it takes is for Pomeranz to get two saves and the Padres say you know what this is working we're going to keep Pomeranz in this role and if they did he has to be going higher than Kenley Jansen he has to be going higher than Brad Hand I mean we're, we're talking about one of the first closers off the board honestly if if Jace Tingler came out and said I'm completely committing to Drew Pomeranz as our closer for 2021 I'm taking him after Hendricks and Hayter so the fact that I could get him at 232 is kind of a speculative play. Yeah, it might not work out. Maybe he's not the closer and he's some eighth inning guy who maybe gives me good ratios, but I have to drop because he's not doing anything else. And that's fine because who would I have had instead? You know, like Nathan Evaldi, Zach Davies, like that's fine. I'm willing to take the risk and missing out on one of those names and taking Pomeranz because of the upside. I think that also to your point, even more so is that if it's not Pomeranz solely, I think it's going to be a mix and he's going to be in that mix. So at some point you have to look at Pomeranz being the only logical option for some save opportunities in that group of people. So there's like some level of reliability there also, which is even makes it more like makes me more think along the lines that you're saying, which is that he's really undervalued right now. Right. Because if that is the case, where he's just in the mix, then why is is Nick Anderson going 70 picks earlier? Because I view Nick Anderson the same way. The, the race had like 13 guys get a save last year. Nick Anderson is not the clear-cut closer for the Tampa Bay race. He's just a really good reliever. If anything, I think Pomerantz might be better than Nick Anderson, especially from what we saw Nick, from Nick Anderson in the playoffs. Again, if it's if both situations, if the consensus in the fantasy community is that both of these situations are like, you know, it's going to be whose turn is it to get saves? Well, then why why is Pomeranz going 70 picks later? Now, when you look at the Padres bullpen, you know, Pomeranz is obviously coming from the left side. So I am curious, you know, when we talk about the Padres bullpen, how many lefties do they have? Maybe they would want to commit to one of those righties so that they can have Pomeranz in a more flexible role. And as I'm looking, it looks like just Tim Hill 
is the lefty. So that that concerns me a little bit. And maybe that's why Nick Anderson is getting it. But if lefties are coming up in the ninth, I think it's a slam dunk. Then the Pomeranz is going to get the save opportunity. Maybe that's what it is. They want more flexibility with a left-handed reliever. Obviously, Pagan, the Lanson, and Keone Keeler are all righties. So one of them emerges. But I'm still willing to take that risk on, on Pomeranz. Yeah, definitely. Especially at 230-something. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So Chris, this being our, our first go-around in a while, how's it feel? I don't know. I think I'd give us like... B plus, A minus, uh, I, I mean, solid. Considering we got forty three minutes out of of talking about you know Jazz Chisholm and and Bobby Dahlback and whoever that guy on the Braves was, I'd say we did pretty well. I'd say we did pretty well. Yeah, watch that. Like literally, none of the guys that we mentioned are fantasy relevant this year. But hey, you know what? You listened, and that's what's that's important, right? So, folks, please give us a follow at, at Pitch Count P. That's for Pitch Count Podcast. Uh, you can follow me at, at Pete B Baseball. Enjoy the new intro and outro, courtesy of at Burned Wick. John, my brother. Uh, and that's it for the Pitch Count Podcast. We are signing off. See you later, guys. Later, fellas.